morning. We have been making our way through the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, and as we have been looking to this genealogy, which is fundamental to the birth narrative, we have been exploring the stories of the four women highlighted in that genealogy. We've done so, as we said last week, because those are the prequel stories that that round out our understanding of it all, of all that, that took place in, in Jesus' line and in Jesus' birth. And so this week we pick back up in verses 5 and 6 in Matthew chapter 1. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Rahab, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. The word of God presents the heart of Jesus to us through story. And we've heard some of those stories over the past few weeks. Last week we heard the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2 and, and saw how that story of, of Rahab's work to save the people of Israel and further the line of Christ helped us to understand more about Jesus and his story. But today we turn to Ruth. What does Ruth's story tell us about Jesus? Well, as we look to Ruth, I think we're going to see Jesus' heart for the downtrodden. We're going to see his wisdom and his creativity and, and his providential care for and protection of Ruth. We'll see his delight in redemption. We'll see his love and design for relationships, a design that helps us to understand how we can enjoy a relationship with him. So as we look to the story, we'll follow a similar outline as we had last week. We want to ask the question, who is this woman? What is the story? What does it mean for us today, and, and how does her story point us uniquely to Jesus? To do that, we're going we're gonna to make our way through the book of Ruth. I won't read the entire book, <laughs> um, but we're going to look there beginning in Ruth chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 5. Before I read that passage, would you bow with me as we ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word? Father, you are the author of this story and of the grand story of redemption that we have in Jesus Christ, so you are the author of our stories. And we pray that you would guide us in understanding, that as we look to your word, we would see and know and love Jesus more fully. Do this, we pray, in his name, amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, 
he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. It's the word of the Lord. So who is this woman in the genealogy of Jesus? Well, the first thing we see is that she's a Moabite. So what then does a Moabite, uh, what is a Moabite doing, a non-Israelite, in this line that points us to Jesus Christ? Well, we have to explore her story to understand that. And the story begins with, with a husband and wife. Elimelech and Naomi. Elimelech and Naomi left Bethlehem. They left the promised land. We don't have time in one sermon to explore the entire book of Ruth. We're not going to be able to cover every storyline. But in this opening, there should be red flags waving. God's people left the promised land in search of food. What is going on there, and why would they leave the place that God has promised, leaving His provision to go in search of sustenance? Well, we ought to be alert to that. (laughs) They went to Moab. Moab has a complicated history with the people of God. The Moabites were the offspring of an illicit relationship between Abraham's nephew Lot and his daughter, who decided to take matters into her own hands and seduce her father. It's been an auspicious start for the Moabites. The land of Moab was then land where the Israelites uh, waited at the end of their 40-year journey preparing to go into the promised land. While there, the Moabite king tried to curse the people of Israel. That curse failed, at least partially through a talking donkey. Um, But yet, as the people waited, the sons of Israel committed adultery with the daughters of Moab, thus bringing curse on themselves. The curse ended by a zealous priest named Phinehas. It's a complicated relationship that the people of Israel have with Moab, and that is where God's people, Elimelech and Naomi, went to find food. Also, the storyline behind Ruth's heritage. 
Ruth, we see here, beyond her circumstances, well, she's a widow. It's part of her circumstances. And, and even more so, she's an orphan because her father-in-law has passed, and so she, along with Naomi, are left destitute, downtrodden, with no provider. Beyond their circumstances, though, the story goes on to tell us more. As Ruth chapter 1 moves forward, Naomi prepares to send her two daughters-in-law back to, back to their homes. We pick back up in chapter 1, verse 14, verse 14 through 18. Then they, Orpah and Ruth, lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This week, Anna and I celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. It's amazing how she hasn't changed a bit. I'm not sure about me. But I have a reminder of that on our dresser in our bedroom. It's a gift that she gave me on our wedding day. It's a picture of her in her wedding dress, along with it, these verses from Ruth chapter 1. It was her commitment on that day to me. This week, as we celebrate our anniversary, we had a laugh about that picture. Well, not the picture, the verses. Because 25 years ago, uh, neither one of us had any idea what she was promising when she said, where you go, I will go. (laughs) Put her to the test. She has remained faithful. The thing, though, is Anna was quoting Ruth's words, but Ruth wasn't speaking to her husband. Ruth was speaking to her mother-in-law. Which tells us something of Ruth's character. She was a woman who was committed. But more than that, in these verses, we see that she was also a convert. She clung to her mother-in-law, confessed her God, and declared him to be Yahweh there in verse 17. We we talked about that last week in in Rahab's confession to, to declare the Lord God Yahweh, again, those all capital letters spelling out Lord, that is how the translators have have sought to capture Yahweh, the covenantal name of God, the name by which God's people are to know him. Ruth is declaring him Yahweh. Now, look, if you've not heard that confession today, we would want to press in. We would want to learn a little bit more about what was going on in her story. There is no sinner's prayer that we see Ruth praying in chapter 1. But there is a sinner confessing the Lord. 
and her life from here on out reflects that confession. Ruth is yoking herself to Naomi. To Naomi's people and to her God. And so we see in this story the work of God's sovereign grace throughout. Calling Ruth to, to a new people. Calling Ruth to himself. That's who this woman is. What is this story? If you got the newsletter this week, I encouraged you to read all of Ruth. I'll remind you again now. If you haven't done that, spend a little bit of time this afternoon. In one sitting, read this story. It will bless your soul to sit down and read these, these four chapters. I'm not going to read them all today, but I do want to summarize what happens in chapters 2 and and 3 after Ruth is committing herself to her mother-in-law, Naomi. If we we summarize the action, Naomi and Ruth actually return to Bethlehem, which, by the way, in the Hebrew means the house of bread. (laughs) They return to God's provision. Now, they were still destitute, still without a provider, but God had commanded his people to care for the poor. And part of the way that he had provided for that care was his command for them to leave the gleanings in the field. The gleanings were the, were the leftovers, the, the extras. And God said, no, you are not to... to Pick up every last drop, not because you are being wasteful, but because that is how I am going to provide for the poor. So Ruth went into the field to pick up the gleanings. It's ironic in verse uh, verse 3 of chapter 2, it says that she happened to come the part of the field belonging to Boaz. It's almost if the Lord is winking, saying she just so happened to show up at Boaz's field. But the irony is this. This story is a beautiful story of God's providential care. His sovereign grace. He brings Ruth to Boaz. Boaz is identified for us as a worthy man. He was a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. And Boaz offered Ruth a warm welcome. He told his his servants to protect her in the field to make sure she had an abundance of, of food. Even fed her lunch and sent her home with the extras, not just from the field, but from lunch to go and provide for Naomi. Naomi was wise to this provision. She saw what was going on when Ruth came back. She knew Boaz's reputation. She knew him to be a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman Redeemer was also how God was providing for his people. It's part of his plan to care for, to protect, and to preserve 
So, Naomi sent Ruth to Boaz. She sent him to to meet Boaz at the threshing floor and, and in going to call on Boaz to fulfill his role. There, by night, in the dark, Ruth uncovered Boaz's feet. She lay down at his feet in submission to her Redeemer, asking him to fulfill his role. Turns out, however, that there was a closer kinsman. Boaz acknowledged this closer kinsman, but promised to resolve the matter. Let's pick up with the story in Ruth chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite. The widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate of the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is a great story written to us by a great author. But why are we reading it now? Why are we reading it at Christmas time, the season of Advent that anticipates the coming 
of Christ. And what does it matter to us, all of these details that are going on in the story? We said last week that God gives us story in His Word, that He weaves these stories throughout. And and stories are important to us because the more we embrace them, the more we remind ourselves of these stories, they have a culture-shaping power within us. They, They remind us who we are. They remind us our history, which shapes our future. And this story is a beautiful, powerful story given to us by God. We already said we can't tackle all of the implications of this story. We can't tackle this morning all of the ways in which this story shapes our culture. And so having said that, I want to to deal with a main topic in Ruth. There is a word that shows up over and over again that, that forms a theme in this book. And the word is the word worthy. Boaz is introduced to us as a worthy man. The elders at the gate, they they pronounced a blessing over him in in chapter 4, verse 11, saying, May you act worthily in Ephrathah. It wasn't just Boaz. Ruth is a worthy woman. Chapter 3, verse 11, describes her as such. It is the theme of this book. So much so that if we look to the the, the Hebrew Bible, to their canonical order, Ruth doesn't come after Judges, between Judges and 1 Samuel. Ruth comes after Proverbs. Now, Proverbs 31 is the story of a worthy woman. In the ESV, the translation is, how can we find an excellent wife? But the excellent wife in the Hebrew is the exact same as the worthy woman. So in the Hebrew Bible, this book comes after Proverbs. Proverbs 31 and Ruth. But what does the word mean? What does worthy mean? Some of us have some baggage around this word, do we not? Some of us have spent our entire lives trying to be worthy. Trying to be worthy of love, of affection, of acceptance. (laughs) Is Ruth shaping our culture by telling us to prove ourselves worthy? Worthy of acceptance? Worthy even of being saved? Is that what we're reading here? No. Two meanings to the word worthy. In one sense, worthy means meriting some acceptance, meriting some recognition. But on the other hand, worthy also means honorable. Ruth is honorable. Boaz is honorable. But it's important for us to see how this worthiness plays out in the story. Ruth's worthiness 
is ultimately seen in her submission. That whole scene that I skipped over as I was giving you the highlights, I want you to go back and read in chapter 3. It's the scene at the threshing floor. What's going on when, when Ruth approaches Boaz in the dark of night and as he is laying down, she lays herself down at his feet, uncovering his feet. Some read that story and see in it seduction. But perhaps when we see Ruth chapter 3, in terms of seduction, it's telling us more about ourselves than about Ruth. We superimpose on Ruth the way we would approach the matter. Seduction is taking matters into one's own hands. But the worthy woman submits herself. She humbles herself by acknowledging her need. She's not uncovering Boaz's nakedness, which is the euphemism for a sexual encounter in the word. She is uncovering his feet and calling on him to spread his wings to, over her to protect her and care for her. As Ruth is presenting herself to the one who is worthy of meeting her need. She's playing a high-stakes game of trust fall. You know the game trust fall. When you lean back, hoping someone's there to catch you. This takes courage. It takes honor on Ruth's part, knowing that if Boaz is not the man she thinks he is, then he is going to take advantage of her. She will be tarnished. Her reputation will be tarnished. But she trusts what she knows. She trusts the Lord in whom she has confessed. And she submits to the Redeemer he has provided. But it's not just Ruth who submits in this story. Boaz is a worthy man, but his worthiness is on display in that he submits to his role. Remember, there was a nearer kinsman. Why did he not redeem Naomi's land? Because he learned that it wasn't just the land that he got. That if he were to redeem the land, he would also be redeeming Ruth. In other words, there was a costly implication to this redemption and he knew that if he were to fulfill that role it ultimately would not benefit him the nearer kinsman had a god-given role to play but he refused to play it because it was too costly boaz on the other hand submitted to his role he submitted to god's call on his life even though that that call was costly, even though it would ultimately benefit another. Do you struggle to submit to the role that God has placed you in? Do you struggle because submission would be costly? God has given us this story to shape who we are. This is our heritage. This is our family story. 
God is telling us in this story that we are a people who are to submit for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. These are important lessons that we see in Ruth's story, but if we stopped there, we would miss the most important. These lessons are not the primary point of the story. These lessons about worthiness and submission are not here merely or even primarily to model behaviors for us. They are here to inform the way that we celebrate Jesus. We said last week that each of the stories that we're exploring and in the genealogy of Jesus point us uniquely to Jesus' birth and to his death. I stopped after verse 12. Let's pick back up in Ruth 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, for he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Ruth's story points us beyond David to the greater David. Did you, did you find it striking that here at, the, here at the very crescendo of the story, the main characters just seem to fade into the background. The story is not about Ruth and Boaz, ultimately. Oh, they had a role to play. But they serve a higher purpose. All of us serve a higher po purpose. You and I are not the main characters in the story. We're not the main story main story in Ruth and the main story in our lives is to advance the kingdom of God. And we see it here as the storyline advances through the genealogy, through David to the greater David, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We said that last week in the Old Testament. When you, when you see these pointers to David, it's, it's the Lord ushering our eyes beyond David to the true King of Kings. Ruth's story is part of the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. Because through her, the Lord has providentially preserved the line that extends from the woman, Eve, 
through the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, the line promised in Genesis 3.15, the line that runs through Ruth, the line that runs to Jesus through a destitute Moabite widow named Ruth. So yes, we read this story now because it points to Jesus' birth. But not only did God preserve the line of the Redeemer through Ruth, He preserved Ruth through the Redeemer. The uniqueness of Ruth's story and the stories that we have been exploring is the role of the kinsman redeemer. Ruth highlights this this God-given role more clearly than probably anywhere else that we see in all of Scripture. In the role of the kinsman redeemer, we see the heart of God in His provision of a redeemer to care for the widow, the orphan, the oppressed. The kinsman redeemer is baked into the law of God, is God provides for this role to deliver the near kin from danger and from hardship. In Scripture, there are four roles for the kinsman redeemer to play. In Leviticus chapter 25, we see that the kinsman is to buy back, the kinsman redeemer is to buy back his kinsman from, from the bondage of slavery. Also in Leviticus 25, we see that the role of the kinsman redeemer is to buy back the land of a relative who has sold that land. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, we see the role of the kinsman redeemer in terms of leveret law. Michael explained that beautifully earlier as we read the story of Tamar and the role of the the leveret to to marry the widow and to raise up seed for her, which protects the widow and protects the family line. And then fourthly, Numbers chapter 35, the kinsman redeemer is to avenge the blood of his relative. Boaz fulfilled two of these roles. He bought the land and he fulfilled the leveret law. It was costly for Boaz, but he submitted to that role. And ultimately, he submitted to God's call on his life of providing. But Boaz is pointing us to our true Redeemer, Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfilled every call, who submitted to his role, and fulfilled all four of the roles of the kinsman redeemer. Jesus Christ, our redeemer, has purchased us from the bondage of slavery to sin. He has provided for us an inheritance that is undefiled and unfading and kept for us in glory. He is the groom who brings us into the family of God. And he is the one who will fully and finally avenge our accuser. Because at Christmas we celebrate more than the birth of a baby. We celebrate the incarnation. We celebrate the coming of our Redeemer. You've heard of this Redeemer in the story of Ruth. 
It's a story that is fulfilled in Jesus and is foretold in prophecy. If you are a note taker, write down Isaiah 54, verses 4 through 8. I close with this prophecy of our Redeemer. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Ruth and all of Scripture points us to Jesus. Friends, our worthiness is seen most clearly in our submission to and dependence upon the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And so to our worthy Redeemer, Lord Jesus Christ, be that glory. He is the one who hears our cry and he is the one who delights to redeem. Father, are we praise you for the beauty of your word. We praise you for the way that all of your word points us to, to Jesus, to our redemption in him, to our place in, in your family through him. And so I pray that this, this Advent season, as we anticipate a celebration that we would anticipate with hope, knowing that, that our redemption is already fulfilled in Christ. Would you, would you bless us with this knowledge and grow us in our experience of union in Him? Do this, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.